Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. When Simone de Beauvoir died in 1986, French TV news described her as a symbol of women's liberation. But they couldn't resist bracketing her name with that of Jean-Paul Sartre, her lifelong partner. Almost four decades later, Beauvoir's reputation as a pioneering feminist thinker is well established. The main challenge she faces today is misunderstanding rather than neglect. Our guest today for a conversation about Beauvoir's work and legacy is Emma McNichol. She's a research fellow at the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. How has the discussion of Simone de Beauvoir's work and ideas been affected by what we know, or perhaps what we think we know, about her personal life? So Simone de Beauvoir is someone with whom millions of people have always felt very familiar, someone that they've felt acquainted with, and often maybe still someone whose life choices people feel very free to comment on. She's probably first and foremost known as the beautiful partner of the most important European philosopher of her time, Sartre, even though she herself was a super engaged and diligent philosopher, but that's really been overlooked. The overlooking of her as a philosopher is not entirely irreducible to sexism, by which I would mean that the question of whether society found it too difficult to embrace the reality that a woman was actually philosophizing. So there are significant implications regarding um, the fact that we have overemphasized her life over her work, I mean, in terms of how we understand her work. So her work or corpus has not been taken seriously as philosophy, And we have always known so much more about her love life than her work, far more about her companions and are so familiar with images of her actually writing rather than the particulars of her philosophical acuity and originality. First, her corpus was viewed primarily as fiction, so she was celebrated as a writer. And when she was ultimately recognised as a philosopher or philosophical dimensions of her work were kind of noticed, it was believed that she was kind of deploying existentialist jargon and that it was an echo of her boyfriend's influence rather than the truth, which is that it was an original and sustained engagement with actually Western philosophical history. In other words, Weber was a philosopher in her own right. She didn't only know philosophy through Sartre and was not only you know, a shadow or an echo of his ideas. But also it's, a, it's still a pretty tricky case about why we know more about her life than her work because she narrativized her life in pseudo-autobiographical fiction and assiduously detailed it in a four-part memoir. So she was not straightforwardly instrumentalizing her life to cultivate fame and her own mythology, though she definitely did achieve that. She played with her life and her lived experience as textual and philosophical fodder. Her literary philosophical preoccupations played a role in and contributed to scholars failing to carefully systematically and also empathetically engage with her body of work as philosophy. And as as is well known, she rejected the mantle of philosopher. Deferring to Sartre, she would insist, he is a philosopher, I am a writer. So we might say that she actually challenged our conceptions of what philosophy is or should be. 
The second sex is a philosophical investigation, an exploration into what it means to be woman. But she was also committed to a form of literary philosophical investigation as a phenomenologist. She was detailing the lived experience in a body as philosophy. So in some respects, we can't say that we focus on her life, not her philosophy, in a really simple way, because she was actually blending the two and challenging our ideas about what philosophy was. And this is, of course, a dimension of her feminist praxis too. She was sharing the details of what was at the time considered to be a highly unorthodox and quite liberated and inspiring life. Finally, and it does line up quite neatly with her 1986 death, her work since about that time has been treated and recognised as philosophy. So at the start in the 80s, there were debates in the scholarly commentary regarding who influenced whom. And there was some rather heavy-handed feminist revisionist scholarship claiming that Beauvoir's thought was the basis of Sartre's tome being a nothingness, for example. These days, things are a little bit more measured. It's not a question of whether she derived all of her ideas from him or whether he was in fact copying everything she ever thought. The commentary, finally, is recognising the fact that Beauvoir's work emerged in the specific literary philosophical milieu and her work was influencing and being influenced by a number of works by different people. And Beauvoir's studies today is absolutely blooming. So Beauvoir is finally having her day. She's now recognised as a philosopher. The following clip comes from an interview with Beauvoir that was broadcast in 1976. How do you think Jean-Paul Sartre's work would have been different had he not been influenced by you? We have not been influenced by each other uh, about, uh, how should I say, the inspiration, the creation, the creative part of our work. But we have helped each other by, uh, how do we say, criticizing each other very much. I mean, uh, when I wrote something, uh, Sartre read it and uh, gave me uh, advice. And when he wrote something, I read what he had written and uh, gave him advice. But the first idea, the conception, the creative work was always done by each of us alone. It was only after it was done that we could help each other. And then it might have been changed because of what you would say to each other about it. Oh, yes. Very often I I, uh, heard his advice and changed what I had written, and he heard my advice and changed what he had written. It was quite reciprocal. Beauvoir's adopted daughter Sylvie spoke about her relationship with Sartre for another documentary that was produced after her death. Was um, Sartre a feminist? <laughs> yes, he said so and he wanted to be a feminist and he was. He, he had good will, <laughs> but uh, he, he recognised himself. He had um, big uh, vices. Bad habits, you know, with women. Uh, and uh, personally, he, he was um, uh, with the women uh, old-fashioned. Treating them like minors, you know, children. But uh, he was guilty. <laughs> he was feminist in his thought. But he was not feminist in his practical. <laughs> like a lot of, not a lot, but like some men. What was the political and intellectual context in which she prepared to write The Second Sex in the late 1940s? The late 1940s in France were really interesting times. 
Beauvoir's generation had transitioned straight from World War II and the German occupation into the Cold War. Now, the atrocities of the Second World War certainly influenced Sartre and Beauvoir's works. I would conjecture that the climate uh, made Beauvoir's philosophy uniquely attuned to a kind of dialectical relationship between circumstance and freedom. Um, but in May 1949, Beauvoir started um, publishing discrete chapters of Le Deuxième Sex and then published the text um, in two complete volumes. Um, so she was one of what we know as the left bank intellectuals, referring to a well-known part of Paris, where there was a sort of dynamic or fluid ensemble of musicians, writers, philosophers and artists, where they would drink, party and share ideas. But it's important to qualify that Beauvoir and Sartre were firmly on the left, which meant that they were anti-capitalist and passionately believed in a socialist alternative. But they were in a rather precarious position politically. They ran the journal, which translates to modern times, which sought to be neutral in a Cold War context, meaning they were both against segregation and racism in the United States, but were also against the Stalinist misappropriation of Marx and the emerging reports regarding gulags in the Soviet Union. Beauvoir and Sartre had a really complex relationship with the dominant French Communist Party or the PCF. Beauvoir was suspect of the PCF's hard Stalinist Marxist line, and the PCF was equally suspicious of Beauvoir and Sartre, finding and um, kind of assuming that they were kind of like useless bourgeois intellectuals that didn't really want to get their hands dirty. And that they sort of, um, both their upbringing and their kind of preoccupations meant that they were dangerously remote from working class concerns. However, Beauvoir and Sartre still thought that the PCF was a lesser evil than the capitalist imperialist West. Beauvoir explained that she shared horror in all of the PCF were fighting against, though qualified that she could never be a party member. And Sartre, after the liberation, continued to work with the PCF, but in a way which he framed as with but outside the party, a position from which he would offer both support and criticism. In their general modern times, Beauvoir and Sartre were trying to mobilise and engage less deterministic aspects of Marxism, reformulating and exploring what a non-Stalinist Marxism would look like. And the PCF thought this project was extremely arrogant. Beauvoir had travelled um, to the United States in 1947 and written her very interesting travel diary, America Day by Day. Um, and she was increasingly familiar with works that engaged race-based oppression. So in writing The Second Sex, Beauvoir um, credited White of Swedish author Gunnar Myrdal's American Dilemma and cited conversations with black American novelist Richard Wright as instrumental. And also just one final comment on the role and perception of women in France at the time. Um, don't be fooled by introductions to The Second Sex that claim that the text emerged in a kind of timely moment um, because women had just been granted the right to vote. French women had fought for a very long time for this right, and in 1944, when um, de Gaulle finally gave French women the right to vote, um, it was meant as a gift for them, for their contribution to the war efforts, rather than an actual recognition of their status as equal citizens. So though Beauvoir was writing in a context in which French women were engaged in paid work outside the home, French women tended to work in agriculture prior to World War II and then in low-paid service jobs in tertiary service and unskilled um, subsequent to the war, the workforce was absolutely structured around the assumption that women were first and foremost mothers. They were expected and were heavily encouraged by the state to leave the workforce and boost the depleted French economy. Women were offered welfare allowances, subsidies and family allowances that increased with every child. As Beauvoir argued in The Second Sex, the idea of women as mothers, that their natural vocation was in the home, was kind of central, immutable and implacable dimension of the French imagination. What was the reaction to the book at the time of its publication in France? 
The second sex really hit a nerve. It was hugely provocative. It was rejected by the Gaullist and the Catholic right and the communist left. In 1963, Bova reflected that she was not quite surprised that the right didn't like the book, but she was really shocked that the communist left was so harsh on it. She stated, my thesis owed so much to Marx and gave it such a prominent place that I expected some impartiality from the French Communist Party. Bova released three of probably the most salacious chapters, one titled Motherhood, another titled Sexual Initiation, and the final, The Lesbian, and ignited shock and horror and scandal before she even published the complete volumes. The reviews consistently likened the text to pornography and smut. The second sex was thoroughly indecent. It was revolting. Both ends of the political spectrum thought it was disgusting. It's interesting to kind of attempt to historically contextualise these reviews. The consistent associations between the second sex, pornography and smut for instance, it was described as at the limit of the object. It was clear that she had ruffled some feathers. There was some sense that in discussing women's sexuality, she was saying something she wasn't meant to say. Beauvoir was bringing out France's dirty secrets. Let's not forget that there's this sense of humiliation and wounded masculinity felt by Frenchmen at the time. France was not merely defeated, but they had collaborated. So there's this sense of shame, defeat, and the war in its aftermath seemed to create what we might today call a toxic moment of masculine fragility. And Bobart's text seemed to really rub salt into it. In another part of the interview we've already heard from 1976, Beauvoir spoke about the hostile reaction to the second sex from intellectual figures such as Albert Camus. You have always been a woman greatly respected in intellectual circles. Do you feel that you have been, within those circles, discriminated against as a woman? No, I never felt I was discriminated. Well, I was very astonished when I wrote uh, The Second Sex to see that some of my male friends were very angry at me. For instance, Camus. I believed uh, he was, uh, if not a feminist, he considered that uh, women and uh, men uh, could be uh, equal. And uh, then I discovered uh, him and uh, some others that uh, they had a feeling of superiority and was very angry at a woman saying the things I said in the second sex. But before, I never uh, saw in my circle any mark of discrimination since uh, I was intellectually uh, as good as any other. It's kind of explicable why men were angry. Beauvoir directly attacked bourgeois morality and French norms that men directly benefited from. She was not merely discussing what you were not meant to discuss, women's female sexuality, women's ability to enjoy sex, the insane reality that women might actually enjoy sex, but the reality that most do not. She was forthright in her attack. She pointed out, for instance, the illegalisation of abortion was hugely hypocritical. Interestingly, Beauvoir's work on motherhood was almost as provocative as her work on female sexuality. Beauvoir's argument that motherhood is basically a bit of a scam and that women are fed the falsehood that it is their natural destiny to be mothers and lovered while simultaneously divesting women of control and volition over that choice, as well as requisite dignity while doing it, was very poorly received. Even communist journalist uh, Jeanette Prenant objected to how Beauvoir discouraged women from being wives and mothers. It's not clear that that's what Beauvoir was actually doing, but anyway. The way that Beauvoir opens the chapter on motherhood with a very passionate defence of abortion seems still strikingly courageous. Even in 2023, 
abortion is sort of associated with pregnancy, but it still seems like a sort of thematic faux pas to frame it and introduce it so directly alongside the theme of motherhood. One final thing on the text's reception, however, the finding that the text was revolting, smut, is what we can find in the extant historical sources. So in other words, we're dealing with the works produced by the arbiters of what is in fact good and decent. Shock horror, most of them were men. And as one famous review self-reflected, he didn't think a review on the second sex even belonged in this table of contents. And yet the text's first volume's immense popularity, selling, for instance, 22,000 copies in the first week in France, for instance, and then its ongoing and enduring historical influence, tells us that even if arbiters of fine philosophy, good literature or French culture did not embrace it, a hell of a lot of women did. How did the second sex go on to influence the development of feminist theory in the Anglophone world? Well, to put it um, kind of pithily, the second sex is often compared with the Bible in order to underscore how authoritative it is for second wave feminism. But this comparison has some unintendedly accurate valences. Like the Bible, often owners of the second sex guiltily acknowledge they haven't read all of it. And in lieu of sustained cover-to-cover readings, They often know extracts better than the whole, and that's not to go into um, how these extracts are used and abused. Bova is also often described as instrumental in developing an American feminist consciousness. Accordingly, those who we not unproblematically identify as key second-wave authors and activists, um, such as Shulamith Firestone, Kate Millett and Betty Friedan, were all expected to dutifully recognise their Bovarian debt. So Betty Friedan explained that the second sex led her to whatever, now this is a direct quote, led me to whatever original analysis of women's existence I was able to contribute to the women's movement and its unique politics, referring to her her 1963 feminine mystique. Kate Millett, who's often been described as Beauvoir's daughter, very figuratively, reflected later in life that she now realises that she was probably cheating all over the place and owed a great deal to what Beauvoir had said. Millet ultimately conceded that her analysis of D.H. Lawrence was painfully indebted to Beauvoir's analysis in The Second Sex. And Shulamith Firestone, who was once described as the American Simone de Beauvoir, dedicated the dialectic of sex to Beauvoir, even though her argument is profoundly different from The Second Sex's. Kate Millet spoke about the impact of reading Beauvoir's work and meeting her in person in the following clips. When I read The Second Sex, I was at Oxford, And I read it, I think, shortly after it came out. It was a very uh, disturbing book. In fact, it it almost, early editions often had nude ladies on it and stuff. It almost had a sort of, you know, mischievous cachet. Uh, Apparently, it was so subversive that it got mixed up with being a little sexy, too. Uh, But you were a real firebrand if you read that book. and, And if you paid any attention to it, you were a maladjusted you know, all the awful things he tried so hard not to be, you know, <clears throat> castrating bitch or, you know, like uh, uh, not satisfied with your fate or in need of a therapist or something. People fought about that book all the time. I would send her flowers and let her know where I was staying. And then if she wanted to see me, she could, and I wouldn't be a nuisance. And she'd call up and <clears throat> all the people in the hotel would just go insane because uh, it was Simone de Beauvoir. And it was really strange that there could be a country where a writer or intellectual was like, wow, a movie star, a royalty or something like that. Uh, The respect that was accorded her in France. Seeing her once a year made you understand what it was you were doing. And so 
the hate mongers didn't matter and the reactionaries didn't matter and the newspapers didn't matter and what mattered was the purpose and she reminded you of the purpose. In 1976, Beauvoir herself talked about reading the work of younger feminist authors such as Millet, Firestone and Juliet Mitchell. She credited them with drawing attention to the economic importance of domestic labour under capitalism. Have you read any of the recent feminist writers and gotten any new, uh, obtained any new concepts from them at all? Yes, I read uh, a lot of uh, feminist books, uh, Kate Millet and uh, Schlewitt Fairstone and uh, many other um, American books, chiefly. But then, too, a very good English book by uh, Juliette Michel, Woman Estate. And, uh, well, I read many books. And uh, some uh, articles, rather, written by French women, too. Well, there was a very important thing I discovered. That was the importance of the economic uh, situation of the woman as uh, working as um, inside the house, what they call the hidden work. And I did not know how milliards of uh, hours of this uh, work there is in France and in the States too, and uh, how it is important for the masculine society to have women doing this work for nothing, not being paid for that. And uh, I discovered that uh, all the laws about abortion and uh, all that was in connection with uh, this exploitation of women at home. And I guess that is a very important thing. And uh, now a lot of uh, women begin to take conscience of that. Now, importantly, one of the world's most, or probably the world's most important gender theorists in the West, Judith Butler's early works, were published while they were a grad student student, and eventually their first book, Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, which was published in 1990, drew heavily and explicitly on Beauvoir's The Second Sex in their thesis that gender is performed, maintained and perpetuated by iterative repetitions. Beauvoir's impact on the Anglophone world of feminist theory was not, of course, limited to the United States. Uh, for example, Australian expatriate Jermaine Greer also credited the second sex as an important source in canonical works such as her 1970 tome, The Female Eunuch. So, in, in sum, the second sex modelled an extraordinarily rich approach to feminist philosophy that has been taken up. Beauvoir's declaration in The Second Sex that one is not born but becomes a woman is an extraordinarily famous and well-known um, formulation suggesting or claiming that gender is a cultural and psychological formation. But the second sex does not actually propose a sex-gender split. So we're all, we've all probably heard the, um, the kind of popular paraphrasing that gender is a construct, which is actually a misunderstanding of Beauvoir's thesis. Though it is very easy to find evidence to support a social constructionist reading of the text and to align this with a particular view of Beauvoir's critical program, that is uh, one that demonstrates patriarchal discourse and institutions have made the human female, Beauvoir's poetry accounts for how myths of femininity are received by the body and the way in which embodied experience both reinforces those feminine myths. In The Second Sex, Beauvoir asks, what has it meant to me to live as a woman? And as a phenomenologist, she asks, what does it mean to live as a woman in this body? And in doing so, we might also credit her with having inaugurated feminist phenomenology. Beauvoir, of course, also drew significantly on GWF Hegel's idea of alterity or the other, um, which uh, Beauvoir originally accessed through Kojiv's uh, well-known Paris lectures. So we, and we, of course, we see the idea of woman as an inferior citizen and as othered everywhere in current feminist theory. And in the introduction of the second sex, 
Bovar explicitly avows to challenge a biological essentialist understanding of women, according to which anatomy is destiny, or by which we might define women vis-a-vis -vis a so-called female body. Bovar issues a notion of gender as a merely a construct, as well as a biological conception of female as a sort of requisite ingredient of being woman. So just mentioning for those who might be interested, the second sex um, rather swiftly takes down what we would consider a turf argument quite early on in the text. In your article for Jacobin, you took issue with many of the criticisms of Beauvoir and the second sex that have been made by some contemporary feminists. How would you sum up the main lines of criticism and how well, in your opinion, do they stand up to scrutiny? So the second sex is often dismissed as a kind of embarrassing relic of a naive white feminism whose day has long passed it's often seen as an outdated, biased, passe, racist, classist, and or misogynistic text. A significant consensus, you know, not comprehensive, but significant consensus amongst Anglophone commentators is that the second sex is exclusionary when it comes to women of colour, Jewish women, working class women, and that it is certainly not intersectional in approach. This Anglophone diversity critique finds that the second sex assumes as its subject privileged white heterosexual women who only experience gender-based oppression and do not also experience classism, racism, homophobia, or any other form of oppression. The idea that Beauvoir and Sartre were bourgeois intellectuals and are writing work only for their own milieu and only with their own kind of themselves and their friends in mind is a really consistent critique that they faced both throughout and apparently subsequent to their lives. They were loathed by the right, or often still today considered kind of too bourgeois, too individualistic and privileged for the left. On my reading, however, the second sex is more intersectional than Anglophone critics have allowed. While I was about halfway through my doctoral thesis, Meryl Altman advanced a similar argument in her book, Beauvoir and Time, which was released in 2020. So basically, where Beauvoir is really good and where Anglophone feminists are on the whole quiet is on class. So the second sex is often described as racist, sexist, homophobic and classist, and we're told that the text is unable to think the intersection of race and gender-based oppression or class and gender-based oppression, but this critique weirdly never actually looks at class-based oppression. It never looks at Beauvoir's engagement with Marx in the text. And the second sex, in my reading, is a far more class-conscious text than we ever seem to give it credit for. And I think it speaks to something about the kind of uh, awkward moment the, uh, around um, communism, around Marxism, people are, are reluctant to look at socialism and they're reluctant to yeah, even kind of explore it analytically. Picking up on that point, how did Beauvoir engage with the Marxist tradition of social theory in The Second Sex and elsewhere indeed in her work? I think in some ways it's useful to think about the kind of precarious and and kind of curious social position that an engaged intellectual occupies in society. They're kind of too skint to be middle class, but they are you know, working class can be suspicious of them. You know, anyway, Beauvoir had a really complex and problematic relationship with the dominant party on the left and were considered too bourgeois to be proper communist intellectuals. However, Beauvoir believed in Marxism and she reflected that after reading Capital, the world lit up with a new light when I saw labour as the source and as it were, the substance of values. And nothing ever made me deny this truth. And she was a young woman when she uh, uh, read it. She insists throughout her life that Marxism was a huge influence on her, as well as on the second sex. 
and yet she only refers explicitly to Marx and Marx's work sporadically. So she declared Marx a foundational influence over the text, and I think we really feel Marx very clearly and more explicitly in her 1970 study of the scandal of how we treat the elderly under industrial capitalism, and that book uh, translates in English to old age. But let's talk about the second sex. So the first way that we really see Beauvoir's Marxism in this text is in her direct engagements with his work. So although there aren't all that many, she does a careful reading of Marx, and this licenses a nuanced account of the specific way being working class and being a woman interrelate. In the fifth chapter of the history section, she stresses the specific ways in which women are more shamefully exploited than workers of the opposite sex. Stressing the ambiguous results of the Industrial Revolution, she claims that women were presented with new opportunities, but the combination of their gender and working class status meant they were exploited in extreme ways. And using, engaging with Marx's work, she writes, women were used mainly in spinning and weaving mills, and these activities were done under lamentable hygienic conditions. She explains that being woman bestows them a specific precarity in the workplace, including the threat of sexual violence, noting that in these workhouses, male assistants take advantage of young women workers and use the most revolting means to get what they want. I think she's suggesting rape there. So passages from the history chapter in which Beauvoir engages Marx are important for a number of reasons. First, these passages show that neither Beauvoir nor Marx exclusively imagined the working class as white and male, though she did have to hunt pretty hard to find them, I think. You get that sense because she's quoting sometimes his, um, his uh, footnotes. Second, in these passages, Beauvoir considers the specific plight of the working class woman. She describes how women workers are uniquely oppressed on their basis of their being women. They're inexperienced in political organisations, sexually harassed, abused, They've been socialised into docility and passivity and are reluctant to assert their rights or protect their welfare. In other words, they are unlikely to unionise. And women workers, she claims, vis-a-vis -vis Marx, are also oppressed on the basis of their being working class. Specifically, the increased need of the married working mother, she explains, is exploited by their canny employers. It is most importantly the inextricably bound intersection of their gender and class that constitutes the working woman's extreme degradation and humiliation, which is sounding like a pretty bloody intersectional argument, isn't it? Anyway, Beauvoir's class-conscious feminist analytic is on my reading, in fact, everywhere in, in The Second Sex. She indicts the bourgeois housewife, indicting her as a traitor to women less fortunate than herself. She frames abortion as first and foremost a class crime, noting there are a few subjects on which bourgeois society exhibits more hypocrisy and, of course, makes the sober and incredibly important point that women's experience of abortion is wholly dependent on her financial and geographical circumstance. Furthermore, Marx gave Beauvoir the opportunity and resources to envision what she calls an authentically democratic world. Marx licenses Beauvoir to imagine a world of equality and of liberation, a world without exploitation, a world without classes. Fleetingly, in the myth section of the second sex, she comments, socialist ideologies call for the assimilation of all human beings and reject the notion that any human category be object or idol now and for the future. In the authentically democratic society that Marx heralded, there is no place for the other. And finally, Marx licenses Beauvoir to comprehend social relations that put certain groups into situations of material dependency, which makes them vulnerable to and often complicit in their own alterity and oppression. And fourth, on my reading Beauvoir's analysis in The Second Sex and in a huge amount of her actual work as historicist and materialist, Beauvoir's literary philosophical approach in fiction and essays is often historicist, materialist and phenomenological all at the same time. 
By that, I mean she describes the lived experience of historically and culturally situated bodies in the world. She foregrounds concrete social relations and how our bodies interact with and experience social and class relations. And finally, given that Bova understood colonialism as a particularly egregious form of capitalism, we can reasonably associate her support and writings on in support of Algerian independence with her Marxism. Beauvoir, Sartre and their associates at l'Etat Moderne were actively engaged with the struggle for Algerian independence. Several editions of the journal were banned for their coverage of Algeria. France itself seemed to be on the brink of civil war at the time. This newsreel reported on an attempted coup in 1961 by die-hard supporters of French rule over Algeria. Paris woke up to find that France was on the brink of civil war. Would the rebel generals in Algeria send paratroopers? Defence measures were quickly put into operation. Orly Airport was closed to flights in and out. Nobody in the capital knew the rebels' intentions, but plastic bomb outrages here and elsewhere showed that pro-rebel sympathisers were on the prowl. They struck at the Gare de Lyon railway terminus and at the Austerlitz station. Not with any serious effect, but it was calculated to unsettle the people. Despite all this, Parisians didn't really believe there would be an invasion, but they were uneasy. A short time ago, there had seemed a chance of peace in Algeria at last. Now hope was shattered, not by the extreme nationalists, but by the army itself. Reservists were called up and volunteers enlisted. France was in a dangerous plight. De Gaulle, defied by a large section of the armed forces, how large, not even the government knew. The National Assembly had a warlike look, but soon it appeared that the rebels had missed the chance of a coup d'etat. The general opinion was that in this dangerous hour, the nation as a whole was behind De Gaulle. Later that year, the police repressed a demonstration by Algerians in Paris. They killed at least 200 people, many of whom were murdered while in police custody. What effects did issues with translation have on the reception of the second sex among Anglophone readers in particular? So there are only two English translations of Le Deuxième Sex in existence. Let's start with the first. Um, H.M. Parshley's notoriously bad 1953 translation has a number of issues. <laughs> so, for example, Parshley was a zoologist, um, not a philosopher. In other words, he lacked the philosophical confidence to negotiate which, um, what was quite a complex cross-cultural uh, philosophical literary translation. He also excised around 10 to 15% of Beauvoir's original text. And we know from a letter that he wrote to his publisher, he actually was quite proud of that. <laughs> As a number of scholars have shown, his cuts were not actually kind of naive or innocent. We know that he often cut philosophically nuggety material, as well as a number of Beauvoir's impassioned diatribes against misogyny. In other words, we get the sense that he um, was a little bit rattled by some of the feminist content and took it out. <laughs> he also devastatingly cut nearly every reference to socialist feminism, meaning um, those in the Anglophone world are reading you know, a second sex devoid of Beauvoir's Marxism. Um, and he cut at least 78 women's names, by which we mean uh, women's writers. And as Elizabeth Fallais pointed out, he excised the rich variety of women's voices that make up the text. So in many ways, the second sex is kind of like a patchwork quilt. It's an archive of um, texts that Beauvoir had cobbled together of anything available to her. 
Now, then there was subsequently a 2010 translation by the French translators Constance Board and Sheila Malavani Chevalier. People might be familiar with that. It's kind of a black jacket with a, a white corset on the front. In one respect, this translation is superior to Parshley's um, because these two translators have not excised anything. But the text actually runs the risk of maybe having overcorrected and gone a little bit too far in the other direction. The text is a very literal word-for-word -word translation. In other words, it's not so much a translation as it's almost like a word-for-word -word transposition. And we know, of course, that the art of translation is not a kind of word-for-word -word practice, and it certainly entails taking some form of artistic license. But I've still not even got to how these translations actually impacted the Anglophone reception. So in many ways, the poor translation um, made Beaufort a pretty easy target for criticism. These inadequate translations robbed the text of its philosophical depth, um, its complexity and its texture. The text reads as a lot more simplistic and kind of a lot less intelligent <laughs> and almost like Beaufort's making kind of broad declarations rather than engaging with text and other people's voices. So first and foremost, um, when partially cut out the philosophical content, it meant that Beaufort wasn't understood as a philosopher and the book not as philosophical. And in cutting out the references to socialist feminism, Beauvoir's uh, Marxist context is also sort of taken out. But also, I still think that there is a kind of curious resistance with American scholars today to still aggressively look at class in Beauvoir and in a lot of feminist theory anyway. But in losing literary and philosophical texture and the range of interlocutors with whom Beauvoir is engaging with, it often reads as though she's legislating about life and presenting kind of weirdly normative claims. So while The Second Sex is, a, is actually kind of, well, it's not kind of, it is, it's a text of literary criticism, it's laden with examples from other texts, the te it is almost polyphonic, yet so many Anglophone critics have missed this aspect of the text because neither translations fully capture it. She offers descriptions and examples from other texts so as not to endorse them but as example of how things are for that particular person or that particular character in that particular book without careful readings and really robust, confident translations, we lose this. And I think that we've seen a lot of this heritage play out um, in particularly early Anglophone feminist literature that has been explicitly influenced by Beauvoir. For instance, what people consider to be the American version of the second sex, um, Frieden's A Feminine Mystique, is a far shallower version and a yeah, much more surface level sort of text. In our 1976 interview, Beauvoir was asked about the anti-feminist backlash from both women and men. What do you think women fear most about feminism? I don't know if it is fear. They are jealous of the women who are not just the kind of uh, servant and the slaves and objects they are themselves. I guess that is that. They fear uh, to feel a inferiority in regard with this woman who work outside and who do as they want and who are free. And maybe they are afraid of the freedom which is made possible for them because freedom is something uh, very precious but uh, in a way uh, a little fearful because uh, you don't know exactly what to do with it. So I guess that's what uh, some women fear. You think it's basic then, it's not just a matter of misunderstanding what feminism is? No, I guess uh, even if it is not misunderstanding, there is a more basic fear than that, certainly. Most of them don't want to be really free. 
and they are afraid that men would not be the same with them and would not protect them and help them what they don't do, in fact, but the women hope they will do. What do you think men fear most about feminism? They fear a lot. They fear to have uh, concurrence in their work outside the home. They fear uh, not to have a servant uh, at home to make uh, all the things uh, which are uh, useful for them. And they feel uh, to lose their uh, feeling of uh, superiority because it's always very pleasant to feel superior to somebody. So I guess many of them feel, uh, fear all these things together. Most of them, uh, I guess, uh, fear uh, not to have a servant at home. That's the most important thing for that, them, I guess. They will accept the woman outside, to work outside, if she does exactly the same uh, kind of work for them and for nothing at home. As a final question to draw things together, I suppose, what themes and arguments would you say in Beauvoir's work have the greatest relevance to the debates that are being conducted today? So I think the second sex has some useful rebuttals to trans-exclusionary so-called radical so-called feminism, namely um, some pretty efficient takedowns of biological essentialism. But more importantly, I think in our current kind of hyper-capitalist consumerist feminist atmosphere, I haven't seen Barbie yet, but there is a burger shop near me that's selling a Barbie-inspired burger. Anyway, we talk about race. We talk about it sort of sometimes, but class is sort of consistently um, absent. And for this reason, I think Bovis feminist Marxist analysis is enduringly relevant. So one reason that commentators have overlooked Marx's presence in the second sex and Bovis wider understanding of class is that I believe our current Anglo-American climate of opinion does not consider all forms of exclusion to be of equal importance. The Anglophone diversity critique um, puts an emphasis on race-based exclusion as the key lacuna of the second sex. It's obviously extremely important to focus on the problem of race in Bovis' work. Perhaps, though, it should not be our sole concern and we can we can get a lot out of um, examining Bovis' socialist influences too. So through her appropriation of Marx, in the second sex, Bova explicitly warns us against the tendency to emphasise identity-based differences over and against the inequality that capitalism generates. She notes that the key outcome of workers coming together to unionise is to make gender differences between them feel less compelling. In her account, although the women that Marx described were working under deplorable and exploitative conditions, they neither saw themselves as working class nor were perceived as such by their male co-workers until they joined their union. So she argues that the act of unionising promoted a deeper consciousness of the shared situation of oppression among the workers and writes, the problem was similar to that of the black labour force in the United States. The most oppressed minorities in a society are readily used by the oppressors as a weapon against the class they belong to. Thus they at first become enemies and a deeper consciousness of the situation is necessary so that blacks and whites, women and male workers form coalitions rather than opposition. In other words, on my reading of Beauvoir, she's claiming that if the workers were to become conscious that they all share this experience of class exploitation, they would form a coalition between blacks and whites, women and male workers, based on fellowship and solidarity. For Beauvoir, this coalition would be neither a black movement nor a woman's one, but an all-inclusive workers' movement. In other words, Beauvoir points out that the capitalist class might strategically emphasise the perception of difference between groups, and the political collaboration in pursuit of equality can, in fact, attenuate that perception. We can recognise our shared experience as exploited, and that is both a precondition and achievement of this desired coalition. 
So we can definitely cr- criticise the second sex for neglecting the experience of black women, not to mention some of her absolutely terrible things about um, Muslim women, but we shouldn't, I don't think, overlook her interest in the plight of working-class women. As early as 1949, she's identifying our tendency to get bogged down in the politics of identity and forget about class inequality. Importantly, she stresses that the inclination to emphasise gender and racial difference over and against, and to the point of obscuring, class inequality is actually a central ruling class tactic. So on my reading, at least, I think Bovar's feminist socialist analysis has a really enduring relevance for our time. Many thanks to Emma McNichol for that introduction to Simone de Beauvoir's work. You can read her article about the second sex on the Jacobin website.